Good morning. Good to see you all today. You look great. Just want to tell you that. You look great. Don't, should we say that to each other more often? You look great. Just want to let you know that. Uh, I, I actually wore a suit last night because I had a wedding. And, you know, more people told me I look great than in a long time. So I think I'm going to start wearing my suit more often. You know, you clean, that, light, that thing people say to you, you clean up pretty well. I'm like, what does that mean? Anyway, good to see you. My name is Tom Ellenboss, and uh, I'm the senior pastor of Harbor Churches. So uh, we have several churches as a part of Harbor Churches, and this is one of them. And so I work with the staff and with the pastors of the various churches, and uh, I get to be with you every once in a while. It's a pleasure for me to be here again today with you. We're working through the book of Matthew. Uh, if you're new here, we've just, we're taking a long time through the book of Matthew. I think we're spending a year in it because we want to hear from Jesus, and we want to see Jesus, and we want to focus on Jesus. And I'm going to uh, talk about that in the midst of talking about Matthew today. So if you do have a Bible or your phone, uh, we're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 12 today, just the first verses of that. And uh, but one to run through 21, although I'm not even going to get all the way through the 21st verse. So I'm just going to go uh, partway through it this morning. But I mentioned I did a, a wedding last night and, um, and I was chatting. It was outdoor wedding. And uh, I was chatting with the people who owned the house um, that you know, that the wedding was at and just getting to know them a little bit. And, um, and I'm a pastor and I always have interesting conversations with people that you probably never have. <laughs> and this was one about denominations. And you may not think about denominations or talk about denominations very often, but there's a local denomination called the Protestant Reformed Church. There's the Reformed Church of America, the Christian Reformed Church, the United Reformed Church, all these different denominations. Uh, we're actually part of the Reformed Church in America. And this guy was a part of the Protestant Reformed Church, and he was telling me about this nasty split that's happening in the denomination, um, in, in which uh, one side was accusing the other side of being Arminian, and the other side was the, uh, com- saying that the other side was antinomian. And you're like, what are those? I don't even know what those are, right? Um, I know what those are because I went to seminary, but uh, not words we use in casual speech, right? But there's this big fight apparently happening in the Protestant Reformed Church, and there's like, they're publishing things, and they're mad at each other, and there's this huge split uh, that's happening. And it's not the only split that's happening in denominations right now. Again, this is news maybe you don't pay a lot of attention to, but because of my role, I do, right? It's part of my world. And um, we're part of the Reformed Church of America I mentioned the Christian Reformed Church. I think their synod is maybe next week, which is a synod's like a gathering. It's like the Senate and House of Republicans kind of coming together, or House of Representatives, I mean, uh, coming together and making big decisions. And um, and they've got that meeting, I think, next week or the week after. And there's a big fight going on in the Christian Reformed Church right now. Reformed Church of America, too. Our synod's coming up, I think, in two weeks. And you may have heard this, you may not have heard it, um, that our denomination's going through a big split right now, too. People are leaving and going to this group, and they're leaving and going to that group, and everybody's mad at each other. uh, Because we read the Bible differently. And we think about theology differently. So theology is just, it's two words put together. The word theos, which is the word for God. And logos, which is the word for word or how we think about things. And so theology is just how we think about how we think about God. That's what theology means, how we think about God. And so what happens is in these churches, churches like this, big denominations, uh, we think about God differently. We read the Bible differently, and then we end up fighting with each other, and we end up splitting with each other and starting new groups and doing all these things. You know, being a Christian can sometimes be difficult. Especially when we accuse each other of bad theology. I don't know the last time you were accused of being antinomian. 
Nobody probably accused you of that, right? But maybe somebody said your theology is bad or you're not following, you know, the Bible. That happens sometimes. And our, uh, the name of the series that we're in right now, so we took Matthew, right, and we kind of went through, broke through Matthew. We said we're going to do a bunch of different kind of mini-series. And we're in one right now called Bad Theology. That's why I'm talking about theology a little bit this morning. Because we accuse each other of that. We say that your theology is bad. You've wandered away from the way of Jesus. You're reading the Bible in a way that's different than it should be read. You're reading it through the wrong lenses. I talk about this all the time, especially now that I wear glasses because I just turned 50, you know, and I am reading through different lenses, you know, but we can put on different lenses when we read the Bible and our different traditions impact how we read it. Now, I said earlier, you know, I'm guessing most of you don't think that much about denominations, but that doesn't mean that you don't struggle with different, these different ideas about, about the Bible or different theologies, because I think if we're, if we're honest, uh, being a Christian can sometimes be murky, and we don't like it to be murky, right? We want it to be clear. And so you might hear this. I hear this all the time. Churches will say, well, we're a biblical church, right? And I always go, well, yeah, but we're not. I'm kidding. <laughs> right? No, no, but I mean, I don't know hardly any churches that would say, well, we're not a biblical church, right? But we use this against one another, right? To say, like, well, we're a biblical church, uh, but you're not. What we mean by that usually is that like, we like our interpretation of the Bible better than your interpretation of the Bible. We like our theology and we think you have bad theology. Has anybody ever experienced this? You hear this stuff going on, right? One Christian group defends one thing about the Bible. Then you hear another Christian group defending another thing about the Bible and then we get confused. Hmm. Or we listen to certain, you know, pastors or leaders or groups and we follow them for a while. And then we realize, oh, there's something different over here. And I, boy, and we're, we're all calling ourselves a Christian. And, and, and it's not around small issues, right? Let me just list a few for you. I'm trying to make you really nervous this morning at some point. I'll, I'll do my best. I'll start with this one. Abortion. Human sexuality. Politics, everybody's favorite, right? Racism, gun regulations, economic models, the death penalty, policing, just and unjust war, humanitarianism, human human rights, power, medical decision making, and even parenting. These are like real issues that we face every day in the worlds in which we live, in which our core beliefs our theology, how we think about God, how we think about the world, how we think about ourselves, affects or at least should affect the decisions that we make and the ways that we move in the world. And it gets even more difficult, doesn't it, uh, when one of these issues um, isn't just a news headline, but it's something that's happening at home and is personal. Right? When you, when you have differences of opinion or different lenses, or different theologies, or different understandings of the Bible with your kids, with your parents, with your friends, with your neighbors, with the people you work with, with the people that you go to church with. So I want to think about that a little bit this morning, if that's okay. I want to wrestle with that a little bit. When, when we as Christians, who are supposed to all be committed to Jesus, to God the Father and the Son, Holy Spirit, and to the scriptures that we've been given, when we see the world differently, and we say, well, but we're biblical, and we say, well, well but we're biblical, what do, we, what do we do with that? So let me talk about my kids, love to talk about my kids. 
some of you know my kids, and they're always like, why do you always talk about us? Like, I don't know. You're the best examples I have because you're with me all the time. But um, when I was raising my kids, we had, uh, we had black and white rules, right? Right and wrong, and you do this and you don't do it. Let me give you a couple examples. Here's a couple uh, examples. Here's one. Don't cross the street. Anybody have this rule growing up? Don't cross the street. Well, you know, back when we grew up in the 70s and 80s, nobody drove anywhere hardly at all, so it didn't matter. We crossed the street all the time. But now, like where I live, it's busy. And tell the kids, don't cross the street. Why? Because they don't want them to get hit by a car. And because when they're little, they don't think about looking both ways yet. We've got to train them, right? And so as we train them, we give them pretty black and white rules. Don't cross the street. Or how about this one? Uh, Don't ride your bike around the neighborhood alone. Anyone have that one? We had that one. Um, You know, we live in a world in which, you know, you hear bad stories about kids who are alone and things happen, you know. And so we go, okay, you can't be alone. You have to be with an adult or with your older brother or your older sister. Uh, It's not because we're against, like, solo time, you know. Like, you need some good solitude every once in a while. Running around your bike is a good thing. Uh, It's not because we don't think going and exercising, you know, by yourself is a bad thing. No, it's because we're, you know, we want to be safe. And so we give them this black and white rule when they're younger. Um, or how about this one? Um, don't talk to strangers, right? As my kids are growing up, like that's, that's a rule. And then as they get older, I realize like, well, I, I want them to talk to people they don't know because how else do you engage with people that are different with you? How do you end up doing even things like evangelism? And how do you get to know the neighbors, the new neighbors? Are the, you know, everybody's a stranger at some point. So as my kids got older, my parenting style changed. Right? Those of you who've parented, you know what this is like. Those of you who are kids, like you're, you think about this a little bit. Think about, or you're in that teenage years, or you're becoming an adult. Like you remember, yeah, I remember when my parents had these black and white rules. And after a while, hopefully, if your parents are good parents, they begin to change a little bit. The rules weren't always as black and white anymore. And you began learning, or you began teaching your children about wisdom. You began teaching them about values. You begin to teach them how to discern, right? Is it okay to cross the street right now? Well, that's a discernment question, isn't it? Or a wisdom question. I mean, it's not wise to step in front of the bus while it's moving. But it's also a discernment. Is it busy? Can I, you know, can I see uh, all of those kind of things? You teach them about how to make the right decisions based on right beliefs and out of core values. It's not just about rules either. It's about living life. Um, so we, I, I printed something and I forgot to bring it because it's so cute. But when we were when uh, when we were young, we we had lists for our kids um, because I just got sick of telling them every night to brush their teeth. Any parents have this? Like, you didn't brush your teeth again? <laughs> I have to rem- and I have to remember. So we actually created these lists and we laminated them, and then they had to check them off every night, and they would clean them off, and then every morning, you know. And I, I had lists I was going to bring because the initial ones just had pictures on them because our kids couldn't read yet, you know. And so my daughter, when she was twelve, or she's twelve now, when she was young, we had these little pictures of these princess brushing your teeth, you know, and making her bed, you know, cleaning up her room. And so we had these lists, and the kids would check off the list because we're like, this is. These are the ways you live. Like, you take a bath regularly, you know? Anybody ever have trouble with their kids washing their hair? And they, like, do this all these things where they stick their head under the sink just to get a little bit wet to make you think they wash their hair in the shower. It's like, why did you go through such work to avoid the rules? I don't... 
It was harder for you to do all the other stuff. You could have just washed your hair. Anyway, um, that's my kids. But uh, you're teaching them not just rules of black and white, but you're teaching them how to live. But sometimes you have to do it by checkboxes, right? Well, I don't tell my kids to brush their teeth anymore because they've learned over time. But they've also learned that the black and white, and some of you are just getting old enough, you're starting to realize this, that like your parents don't follow the rules they gave to you. Anybody ever have this? Right? I asked my kids about this. I said, I need a good example for the sermon, you know, and they're like eating at the couch. Right? We can never eat at the couch. And I'm like, I wonder why that rule was there. Well, it wasn't because eating at the couch is wrong. It's not like bad. But we had some values. When when we're eating as a family, we want to eat together at the table. That was a value, right? And also, I just hate picking up French fries out of the couch after they've been there for three months, you know? Or crushed up goldfish are everywhere, right, when they're young? So you don't eat at the couch because mom and dad don't want to clean up after you all the time. So it's a rule, but it's not a rule. It's based on how we want to live life. And so sometimes we end up breaking the rules as adults to our kids. It looks like we're breaking the rules, but actually something more complex is usually going on. One of my favorite musicals is Les Miserables. Uh, it's, a, it's a story of a, of a man who ends up being a criminal because his family can't eat. And so he steals bread. And then the whole story is about the morality of of you know, when you're having in one of these moral dilemmas. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's fabulous. You have to see it. There's a great, you can watch it on TV too. You don't have to go to the musicals. Fabulous story. So Matthew 12, this is all set up. I'm kind of giving you, setting this up as we read Matthew 12. Okay, so through that lens, I've just given you lenses. Okay, through that lens, let's read, let's begin to read Matthew 12. I'm just going to go slowly through a little bit. Of it. I'm going to start with verses one and two. They'll come up on the screen. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and he began to pick some of the heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Now, if you don't know who the Pharisees are, there were a couple different groups. See, they had groups in the church back then, too. You had Pharisees, you had Sadducees, you had uh, the Zealots, you had a whole bunch of different kind of groups. And they all liked their own rules better than the other guys, you know? And so the Pharisees were the rule keepers. Just think about that. They actually, they they, kind of come off as bad in the New Testament, but the Pharisees are actually committed God followers. We weren't Christians yet because Christian didn't, you know, come till after Jesus, right? But they're, they're committed God followers and they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to follow the rules, right? And they're, so the Pharisees are the rule keepers. You think of it that way. Um, and they're not happy in this moment because Jesus and the disciples weren't playing by the rules. To the Pharisees, the rules are black and white. And there was a rule about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is like Sunday. It's the day of worship. It's the day of rest. It's the day when you weren't supposed to do anything. And it's a part of what I call the Big Ten. Not the football Big Ten, but the other Big Ten in the Old Testament, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, right? And so here's the commandment from Exodus. So we're going to pull away from Matthew a minute. It goes like this. Six days you shall labor or work, but on the seventh day you should rest. Even during the plowing season and harvest, you should rest. So that's the law, right? That's the rule. It's one of the big Ten Commandments. You don't work on the Sabbath. Um, And you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath after a while, just from that little rule. 
Like, that, that doesn't say a lot, does it? But, but they made it into a lot. I grew up in a little town west of here called Zealand. Anybody been to Zealand? Been through Zealand, probably, because what do you go to Zealand for, unless you're from Zealand? Um, grew up in Zealand, and Zealand was, uh, when I grew up, it was a community with a lot of rules. And I remember these rules drove me nuts when I was a kid because I couldn't understand them. So some of the rules were these. Um, you don't mow your lawn on Sunday. Like, that's against the rules. Uh, you go to church at least twice on Sundays. You take a nap in the afternoon. Um, you, uh, you can't swim in the pool or play Marco Polo in the pool, but you can float in the pool. These are my parents' rules. They made no sense to me. Um, we couldn't play volleyball. We couldn't go on a boat ride. And we certainly couldn't go out to eat because if we went out to eat, we were making somebody else labor, and that was not good. And you can't spend any money on the, on the Sabbath, right? This is all what's called Sabbatarianism. It's, we were, my parents were trying to teach us how to be good Ten Commandments people, right? And so on the Sabbath, we give Sunday to God, and we don't work. And we do. and so um, those rules, we joke about it with my mom now, and things are a lot different now. But my parents, were, they, were, they weren't trying to teach us black and white rules about the Sabbath. That's, how, that's why I got confused. They were trying to teach us to honor God and to rest from our work and to enjoy each other. And we couldn't play Marco Polo because we might disturb the neighbors during their nap. So that's what that, I found out later that's what that was about. My parents weren't worried about, we played a lot of Marco Polo, but, um, but they were worried that we would wake up the neighbors in their nap. Okay, so, so that's kind of the Pharisees, right? This is how they thought about the Sabbath. This, and Jesus is walking with his disciples, they're picking grain and they're eating, so they're working, which isn't much, picking grain, right? But to them, that was... That was causing a problem. Let's go on in the story. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or, haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath day in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean... I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, so the, the Pharisees asked Jesus a question about why, and they're mad. Why do your disciples dishonor the Sabbath? And Jesus tells them a story. This is Jesus all the time, right? Jesus doesn't do black and white very well. Did you know that? Jesus doesn't do black and white very well. Jesus tells stories. Jesus is treating them like adults, not like children. He says, let me, let me tell you a story. And the story he tells is about King David. And we won't go back into the, the story in King David, but if you want to read it later, it comes from 1 Samuel 21. And this is before King David is King David. He's just David. And he's made King Saul angry. And King Saul is trying to kill him. And so David is on the run. David's on the run from the king. He's a criminal, and he's hungry, and he's lost, and he doesn't know what to do. And so he goes to the church. He doesn't go to his friends. He goes to the church. Um, and he goes into the church, and he tells the priest, hey, I'm going to listen to this. He says, I'm on a special errand from the king. Mm. Actually, the king's trying to kill him. 
But he says he's on a special errand from the king. And then the king says, or then the, the priest says, well, where's all your men? And he says, oh, well, they're going to meet me later. And, you know, I'm going to bring them, you know, the bread and those things. Also not true. Uh, so David tells two lies. And then he gets the bread from the priest and he eats the bread and moves on. And this is the story that Jesus decides to tell in this situation. Why? Isn't that interesting? Why would Jesus tell a story about David lying to the priest when he's interacting with these Pharisees? It's almost like he's trying to poke the bear a little bit with these Pharisees, right? He doesn't give them a black and white answer. He doesn't give them a theological answer. He tells them a story. In fact, he tells them a story of a person who is not necessarily a good character in the story. And I don't think that, I don't think that Jesus is encouraging lying here. I don't think Jesus is doing that. But I think he's talking about, here's a man who was in need, running for his life, and he's not, so you think the bread that he took from the, it's like the communion bread. It's like if somebody came in here before, if we were having communion this morning, and someone came in here before worship, and they were in trouble, and hadn't eaten in days, and said, can I have the communion bread? And we're like, yeah, I guess. You know, it's sacred bread, it's breaking the rules. And what Jesus is just trying to give them is, what's more important to you? Your rules about the sacred bread? Or do you care about the person who's in need? Because the story that comes after this, which we're not actually going to get into this morning, is a man who has a, uh, a shriveled hand, and Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, which makes the Pharisees angry. They, you think they're angry about the grain? Wait till he does a healing. They get even more angry, which is interesting. Jesus is setting this up by saying, you care too much about the black and white rules. So why, why is Jesus challenging that? Maybe a better question to ask is, what happens when the black and white approach to the world doesn't work anymore? Maybe that's a bigger question to ask. What happens when the black and white rules that were developed to train you, right, as a child... What happens when those don't work anymore? Let me give you a good example. I'm a, I'm a hiker. I love to get outside. Uh, I like to do a lot of hiking in, in you know, mountains and those kind of things. And when you visit like a, like a, a park, a national park or something like that, um, often there's natural habitats and you know, they have trails and you're supposed to stay on the trails. Um, and there's certain spots where you're not supposed to go in because they're trying to rebuild the habitat you know, because there's some special moth that is growing there or something. You don't want to disturb it, right? Um, and so sometimes you'll come across uh, signs on these trails. And, and they'll say something like this, stay on the trail. Don't leave the trail. Or you'll see another one that I've seen a lot. It says, protected area, do not enter. Everybody seen these signs? Okay, you've seen these signs. Um, the point is, it's trying to keep you on the trail and they don't want you to damage these areas. And they don't, if thousands of people or millions of people walking in this area, they don't want it all to get trampled. They want it to be beautiful for the next guy who comes, right? And so they're telling you to stay on the trails. Um, one of the big rules around backpacking and hiking is something called leave no trace. Maybe you've heard about this. Leave no trace is the idea that when you're going, uh, the person coming after you shouldn't have seen that you're there. Right? And so leave the place better than you came. If you're a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout, you learn leave no trace. But it's this idea that whatever you, uh, whatever you bring in, you bring out. You don't leave any. So sometimes you'll see another sign that says this, pack it in, pack it out. Right? So if you take it in, you take it out with you. Um, or I, I, uh, another one is, uh, please remove all trash. Right? You'll see that. Or my favorite of all, camp like Bigfoot, leave no trace. Isn't that a good one? 
Uh, the idea is you take anything you take in, you, you take out, and you don't leave anything. So let's imagine uh, you're next to a protected area like this on the trail, and you're eating granola from a little baggie, and you finish the little baggie of granola, and uh, it slips out of your hands, and the wind blows, and it blows into the protected area. Which rule do you follow? Stay on trail or leave no trace? Are you following me? Which rule do you follow? Because if you're a rule follower, you're stuck, right? If you're a Pharisee, you're going to break a rule now, right? And now you've got all this anxiety because you've got, I've got to stay on the trail, but I've got to get my baggie, and, and you've got to come up with some crazy way to figure out how to not leave trash, but how to stay on the trail. It's an analogy of kind of what begins to happen in our lives when we move beyond rule-keeping Christianity. Paul, one of the first pastors, missionaries, theologians in the early church, he wrote a lot of the New Testament as you get past the Gospels. Uh, Paul grew up as a rule follower. In fact, Paul was a Pharisee before he came to know Jesus. He was a rule follower. He tells a story at one point. He says, I was like the best of the Pharisees. I mean, I kept all the rules, every single rule. Like I was, I was the A student who never walked off the path. Uh, I was a good one. And he knew the letter of the law. He followed it. He studied it. But see, Jesus has this unique ability to get into our lives and shake us up a little bit. And Jesus got into Paul's life. And Jesus challenged him. And he, he began to realize that Rules are good, but only up to a point. The rules are there to help us, to teach us. The rules are there to give us discipline. Like my kids in the morning, you know, do all the check things in the list. It was funny, even looking at my list this morning, uh, after I'd printed it out, I'm kind of going through it. And um, the things that my kids now do habitually that they're really good at are things that we had them do in lists a long time ago. They haven't had lists for years. But now they follow this because they've been trained. So it's good. The rules are good for discipline. The rules are a tool. But the rules aren't the point. But when the rules become the point, it becomes a problem. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He says this. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. You see, here Paul's talking about becoming a Jesus follower. He's saying, well, I was a rule follower at one point. God gave rules, I followed the rules, I was a rule follower. Then Jesus came along, and I became a Jesus follower instead of a rule follower. In fact, earlier in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, that's chapter 13, um, Paul says this, he says, Brothers, this won't come up on the screen, but he says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who lived by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You see what Paul's talking about here? He's talking about spiritual parenting. When we're new Christians, when we're just getting to know the Bible, like we need the rules, we need the checklist to help us. But then there's a time where we move beyond infants. We move beyond milk to solid food. Peter, another disciple, Plays with the same analogy. This won't come up either, but First Peter 2, he says this. Rid yourselves of malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted the Lord is good. You see, when you become a Christian, you're not done. You're just beginning. We talk about 
new birth. Talk about being born again, right? We're born again as spiritual infants. Paul, who kept all the rules, was a spiritual infant when he had his conversion experience. Peter, who followed Jesus, was a spiritual infant and had his conversion and had to realize that, oh, the world is bigger than I thought it was. The writer of Hebrews uses the same analogy. This won't come up either, but let me read it to you. He says, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. Do you see the lens I gave you earlier about children growing up to be able to discern, pass the rules, and understand why the rules are there? The writer of Hebrews, Peter, Paul, all saying the same thing. Like, don't stay as infants. The rules are good. The rules help you. But you need to grow beyond those. It's time to grow up. Anybody's parents ever say that to them? <laughs> Mine did. I wish you'd grow up. Yeah, I wish I would too. I, I'm still thinking that today. But let me give you, let me give you a sentence that kind of gets at the core of what I'm talking about here. Uh, it'll come up on the stream. Um, there is a core turn in the scriptures from trusting God by trusting his rules, a normal stage in spiritual maturation, to trusting God by the leading of the spirit. Do you see that? They're both about trusting God, just like about trusting parents, right? Like, we trust our parents to give us right rules, black and white. Do this, don't do that. But there's a time when we have to grow up and become adults. And we have to trust the values that our parents taught us. We have to trust the beliefs that they gave us. We have to grow up and understand. We need this. Because we live in a world in which the desire to be right like the Pharisees, it's pretty present, isn't it? There's a lot of fighting today about who's right and who's wrong. And you get labeled if you're wrong. And there's a lot of, as I mentioned early in the beginning, splitting in churches and splitting in families and splitting in communities instead of listening to the Spirit and saying, God, what are you saying to us? The rules are simple and made to be simple in our training, but they don't apply to every situation. And we have to listen to the Spirit. We need Jesus and the Spirit of God to lead us forward. The rules have had their time. And some of us still need those. If you're new in your faith, you need those right now. And that's okay. You'll grow out of those. But those of you who have been around Jesus for a while... You need Jesus and the Spirit of God to lead you forward, and so do I. So how do we do that? Well, I want to go back to the last verse I read from, chap- from chapter 12. It's verse 8. It says this, For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of, Notice this. The Son of Man is the Lord. Not the rules. Who's the boss? Not the rules. Who's the master? Not the lists. Who's the king? Not the book. Jesus, in a moment where the Pharisees come to him with the book, with the rules, says, listen, I know the rules. I wrote the rules. I'm the Lord of the Big Ten. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And there's a point at which you follow me 
because you move beyond the rules. It doesn't mean you break the rules. It appears that Jesus is breaking the rules, but we must not understand the rules very well because Jesus doesn't break the rules. Jesus makes the rules. And so here's where it gets difficult. So Paul, again, in a book he wrote called Colossians, he says that Jesus is the exact representation of the invisible God. Jesus is the embodiment of God. Jesus is the perfect human being walking on this earth, showing us how it's all supposed to go. And Jesus uh, quotes uh, this piece, in, or Matthew does, uh, from Isaiah in the next piece of, of Matthew. Let me read it to you. It goes like this. I will put my spirit in him. This is a prophecy in Isaiah about Jesus. Okay, God's saying, I will put my spirit in Jesus, and Jesus will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel. He won't cry out. No one will hear his voice in the street. But I'll put my spirit in him, God says. Notice, God doesn't say, I will give the rule book to Jesus. He says, I will put the spirit of God in the person of Jesus, and he will show justice to the nations. He will speak justice to the nations. So today is a day, it's a special uh, Christian holiday. Now, you know Easter and Christmas, and maybe you don't know all the other holidays, but today is a Christian holiday called Pentecost. Pentecost is a celebration of when the Holy Spirit of God came down on the early disciples after Jesus left, and they spoke in tongues. They had a flame of fire come over their head, and they, it kind of launched the missionary movement, and the disciples became the ones who were speaking the gospel um, around the world. We're not going into Acts 2 today, but Isaiah, which we just read through the lips of Matthew, are about Pentecost. God says, I will put my spirit on Jesus. And then guess what Jesus does? Jesus says, I will put my spirit in you. There's a point at which as a child, you grow up and you, you realize my parents aren't always going to be with me. Maybe you, maybe you call your parents for advice all the time. You know, you, you ask them for advice. You want to know what's going on. You listen. To, and then there's a point when your parents pass away and you can't call them for advice anymore. They aren't always going to be. You have to grow up, and you become the parent, right? And you become the one, and your kids are calling you for advice. There's a point in Jesus' life, too, where Jesus says to his disciples, I'm not going to be here forever. We've watched Jesus in Matthew. We've watched him grow up. We've heard him teach. We've seen him perform miracles. And now we're in this spot in Matthew 12 where Jesus is starting to say, you guys, you're adults. You can follow God. God gave me his spirit, and I'm going to give you my spirit as well. And you can lean into this. You can do this. You can be followers of God through his spirit. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 13, verse 16, one of my favorite verses. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Too many of us Christians ignore this passage. I want to hear a church, instead of saying, well, we're a biblical church, I want to hear a church say, we're a spirit-filled church who reads the Bible to understand who Jesus is as he leads us. Because Jesus says, interestingly, your denomination won't lead you into truth. Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say your pastor will lead you into truth, does he? I kind of would like that, but he doesn't. He doesn't say your parents will lead you into all truth. In fact, he doesn't even say the Bible will lead you into all truth, does he? Ooh, that's dangerous, isn't it? Told you I'd make you uncomfortable. Jesus says, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth in your heart 
will lead you into all truth. Now, the Bible is a key part of that because that's how God speaks to us and how the Spirit speaks in our hearts through the Scriptures. But Jesus makes the Spirit the point. Jesus says, not me, Jesus says, Jesus says the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. So how do we discern in a world in which Christians are fighting with each other? I hate to break it to you, but it's not black and white. It means laying ourselves before God and listening to the Spirit of God speaking into our hearts as we wrestle with the Scriptures and with Jesus in the world that we live in. And one of the coolest things about Christianity is that God doesn't treat us like children by merely giving us that rule book. Instead, he does this. God gives us the example of Jesus, number one. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, again, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 1. Jesus is a picture. This is what it looks like, he says, right? So yes, the Bible is really important because it shows us the Jesus that God said. It tells the stories of what he did. It tells us what, he, what mattered to him. And so he gives us an example first in Jesus. Secondly, he gives us the spirit in our hearts. You know, when I was a kid, um, I was taught to invite Jesus into my heart which is good and all that, right? But really, Jesus, according to the Apostles' Creed and according to the Scriptures, right, we say that Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus is a person who wouldn't fit in my heart, but the Spirit of Jesus does come into my heart, right? So, technicality, sorry. But the, the Spirit of God's been deposited in your heart. You have the Spirit with you everywhere you go. God has given you that. And God gives you each other. He gives you a community to discern with you. All of that around the scriptures. God gives us an example in Jesus. God gives us a spirit in our hearts, and he gives us a people to embed ourselves in. Let me give you one last scripture, and then I'm going to close. Um, this scripture comes from, again, Paul, from Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And he says this. This will come on the screen. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. So think about two groups that disagree on the scriptures. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. See, Jesus sets aside the law, and he brings us together in himself. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and he preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near, for through him we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. Now I underlined a couple things. I think maybe they were underlined in the scripture there, but Jesus himself is our peace. And through Jesus, we have access to the Father by the Spirit. So what do we do when we're divided with other friends who are Christians? I don't think the answer is to tell them they're wrong because of our black and white rules. I think the question is, what does it mean for the dividing wall of hostility between us to be broken down by coming together in communities and listening to the Spirit and letting Jesus carry us through? Could Jesus really be the peace that brings us together as Christians rather than dividing us out? My heart, I tell you, as a pastor and as a part of denominations, 
my heart is broken that we are making new denominations again. Couldn't we listen to the Spirit of Jesus and bring ourselves, let Him bring us together? My heart is broken by families that have been torn apart because we throw Bible verses at each other and tell each other we're wrong and then we fight and we divide. Could it be that we could submit ourselves to Jesus? Not to the law, but to Jesus. Not to the loudest voices, but to Jesus. Not to the tradition, but to Jesus. Not to the most popular leaders, but to Jesus. Not to what feels most comfortable, but to Jesus. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the light. And Jesus has deposited his Holy Spirit in you and me. And maybe we're still infants and we just haven't been listening. What does it mean for us to be, here's another phrase for you, a kingdom-focused group of people following the Jesus way by listening to God's Spirit in our hearts as we navigate the world and the Bible? That's my prayer for you. That's my prayer for you. To be a kingdom-focused group, a Jesus kingdom-focused group, right? Of people following the way of Jesus by listening to God's Spirit in our hearts as we navigate the world and the Bible. So let me... uh, just end with two um, lists for you of things about what we can do when life throws us difficult situations. The first one is this, is wrestle with the Bible. Wrestle with it. Anytime that someone tells you the Bible is black and white, wrestle with it. Wrestle with it. Listen to it. That's the second part. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. Sometimes, I can tell you, over studying the Bible, over all of these years that I've been a pastor, so many times when I thought I knew what the Bible was saying, and then I realized that God has broken my heart open into something else. The Pharisees thought they knew the Bible. And they thought it was illegal to heal a man on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, are you kidding me? Why wouldn't I heal a man? That comes first. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The third thing is embed yourself in faithful community here or wherever. Wrestle with the Bible. Listen to the Holy Spirit. And embed yourself in faithful community. So to, uh, last thing, I talked a lot about uh, infants and maturity. And if, you're, if you feel like after today, or just maybe you're just a new Christian in general, or you thought you were like a mature Christian, and then today you're like, hmm, maybe I'm not as mature as I thought I was, uh, which is okay. That's all right. What do you do? What next steps can you take to become a more mature Christian? Let me give you three. The first is establish a daily growth plan. If you, if you want to get your body in shape, You don't just talk about it. You don't just think about it. You don't just wish about it. You get up at six in the morning and you work out. Or you develop some sort of plan, right? And you work the plan. If you want to grow spiritually, get serious about it. Read the Bible. Pray regularly. Wrestle. Understand the scriptures better. Understand Jesus better. Second thing you can do is don't do that alone. Do it with a Christian mentor. Find somebody here and say, would you meet with me weekly? Some of the best things that have ever happened to me in my life is I've spent serious time over a period with somebody who is more spiritually mature than me. And they taught me stuff. And I learned things. I learned to listen to the Spirit and learn to understand the Scriptures, get a Christian mentor. And then the last is prepare for the future. Because you will, you will hit moments where you have to be wise and you have to discern. 
And the way you prepare is by a daily plan and working with a mentor and submitting to the Spirit. It's okay to wrestle. It's okay to wrestle with God. In fact, if you didn't know this, the word Israel, the called people of God, the word Israel means to wrestle with God. God's not scared of you. He's not scared of your wrestling. In fact, he invites you to pour into his spirit and to learn more deeply who he is. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you that, uh, that we are already accepted. Whether we're not yet Christians and we haven't given our allegiance to you, whether we're infant Christians and we're just getting started and we're just learning, or whether we've been on this journey for a while and we should be more mature or maybe we are mature. God, you love us at every stage in the journey just like we love at our children at every stage in the journey. God, thank you for the place that each person is today. And we would just ask, God, that you would challenge us to take one step. What is one step that we can take in hearing your spirit, in deepening our faith in you, in embedding ourselves in loving community, in learning the Bible and the stories and the person of Jesus that's represented there? God, you've given us an open door. You've given us an opportunity. You've been invitational this morning, and you've challenged us. And so we pray that we would respond to the challenge and to the invitation. I I pray, God, that each person here would say, what's one step I can take to grow in my faith and spiritual maturity? And that they would do it. We ask for the courage to do these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.